G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Super pumped for this episode. There's very little idea about how to work in older persons. So I brought on Brooke George of A Teaming with Dementia to have a conversation with me and explore this growing practice area for occupational therapy to try and get my head around what does OT actually do in aged care? So I hope you I hope you love it as much as I did. I got so much out of this episode. I think most people that go into OT really have no idea what it's all about, and that was definitely my experience. Um, initially, when I was in Year Twelve at school, um, so I was seventeen, I thought that I wanted to study medicine. So I did the UMAT and miserably failed. Um, and so I thought, what's the next best thing that I could do? And so it was physiotherapy. Um, and I guess being someone who's always been quite active and into sport, physio sort of, I don't know, sounded like a good idea. Um, and then my dad actually put it into my head that, well, he said to me, you know, why would you want to be a physio? You know, you just massage people all day. But that was clearly his understanding of a physio, which was quite limited. Um, because, like, OT physio is very broad. Um, so, yeah, sort of didn't go down the physio path and then, um, yeah, looked into OT um, and found out that a friend was actually looking into OT too. So I thought, oh, that'd be cool if we studied together. And, yeah, went into it fairly blind, really. Um, I knew that I always wanted to be in the helping profession. Um, I think there was just always something, yeah, about helping other people who had experienced adversity um, that stood out to me. And so, yeah, I always knew that that was sort of the path that I was going down, but really went into OT very blind. I think that's uh, that's definitely my experience as well. I was the same. Didn't really went, oh, that sounds interesting, but no really a clue what it was. I don't think it was, geez, probably until placement that I really started to actually get my head around exactly what or even how broad it really was when I started seeing people going off in different directions and yeah. you know, doing different placements and some stuff I'd never even heard of or even considered. So, yeah, I think I think that's probably a sentiment that's shared by a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, I've, I've never even met an OT in my life before I went into study OT. So it was really foreign to me. Yeah, I think... I think that seems to be like uh, having a chat with some of our, uh, like the the students that I teach now. That seems to be less common now. Like I'd never met, well, I didn't know any OTs when I first found it and started. But there's quite a lot of them that do now. So I think it's just sort of, you know, that was when did I finish? Like ten years ago, eleven years ago, something like that. So I think it's in that time, the growth of the profession and I guess the exposure that people are having to the profession is is massive compared to yeah. you know when I when I was looking for what it was anyway. Definitely. And internet and social media, I think, has a lot to say for that, really. Like, I've had Year 9 students email me about their projects and talk about, you know, sensory modulation and occupational therapy, and I'm thinking, wow, I didn't even have any clue about that when I was in Year 9. So I think it's good, though, because it means OT is getting put on the map and people are finding out about it earlier. Yeah, and I think... I think we're getting very, very slowly, but I think we're getting better at explaining kind of what we do and not just, or sorry, who we are and not just what we do. 
So yeah. I think the fact that they're asking questions about, you know, sensory mod and that kind of stuff as opposed to just the traditional like, oh, we give out equipment or we, you know, we work with hands or, you know, whatever the back in the day it would have been. So I yeah. think I think that the questions are exciting for me anyway. I don't know. I'm maybe I'm easily excited. Don't know. <laughs> so when you when you finished uni, what where did you where did where did you start your your career? Where did you work? Uh, so I actually went out into mental health when I first finished OT, um, and I was lucky enough in fourth year of uni. I had put down mental health as a priority for a placement, but for whatever reason I didn't get a placement in mental health and I was actually quite upset about that. I was sort of really keen to to try out mental health. I had quite an interest in it throughout uni and really saw or felt that OT was an awesome fit. And so when I didn't get a placement, I thought, well, I'm actually going to send an email out to um, one particular OT that I sent an email out to and he worked in mental health and I said to him, you know, I really want to work in mental health. Do you have any placements available? And so he, yeah, um, organised for me to do a placement. So I did a placement in inpatient and community mental health and absolutely loved it. And so that placement ended up um, yeah, turning out turning into me getting a job um, in mental health. And so I worked um, in country South Australia in a seven-bed inpatient facility. So it was um, one of three in South Australia. So it was the, that year was the first year that that actually um, opened it. And it was a seven-bed limited treatment centre. So part of my role was to work two and a half days a week in the inpatient setting and then two and a half days a week in the community mental health team, which had been there for few years. Um, and, yeah, so it was quite – I was thrown in the deep end a bit, but I had I was fortunate enough to have quite a lot of support from my supervisor uh, who was based in Adelaide and, yeah, I loved it. It was really good. Yeah, I think that sounds similar to the team that I started in uh, on the Gold Coast, which was part inpatient, part community, and I think – something I've talked about with someone before on here, like I, I, I think purely inpatient is a real, I don't think it's best suited for new grads, but being able to have half and half so you can kind of get a your head around like the bigger picture of the service can work really well, either that or do some inpatient and then change jobs and go into community. So you get your head around that whole system because just working in an inpatient unit, it, it, it's like living in a little bubble. Like you just see people at their worst and you don't get to see the amazing progress they make, you know, post that acute phase. And it it, it does your head in sometimes. Like you, you feel like you're you know, not making any progress when you can be having you know, really profound impacts on people. So, totally. And I think, you know, inpatient, an inpatient is a very controlled environment, whereas in the community, it's not so much, and it is. It's a completely different kettle of fish, really. Mm. Yeah. So now you've you've got your uh, a very strong interest in aged care. How did you get from mental health to aged care? Yeah, they seem like worlds apart. Yeah, well, not really. Um, I think I've always I've always found it easy to get along with older people, um, and I think. 
I thank my parents for all for instilling that value in me. Really, like I would always go and visit my great grandparents. Always go and visit my grandparents whenever we were we actually lived out of town, so um, or in a town away from them. So whenever we'd go away, we'd always visit them, and so I always really cherished my relationship with older people. And yeah, when I was in mental health. Well, actually, I'll, I'll take it back to uni. Um, when I was at university, I was working in retail and I thought, well, you know, this is not really going to give me experience in the healthcare field. So I thought, let's get a job in health. And I was fortunate enough to get a job as a personal care worker at a residential aged care facility. And <clears throat> it was extremely overwhelming. I remember my first shift going, what have I got myself into? But over time, I really, really enjoyed the work that I did as a personal care worker. At that time, I couldn't really see a, a huge fit for OT um, in residential aged care, probably because there wasn't an OT where I worked at the time. There wasn't even really a physio there often. So, um, yeah, I hadn't really grasped uh, the, the idea of OT in residential care at that time, but um, definitely got a got a feel for aged care and, yeah, and then started to develop, you know, deeper interest in that. And when I was working in residential aged care, I would often find myself drawn to those people living with dementia, um, particularly the ones that would wander around. And it was like they were quite distressed and I felt like I didn't really have the skills or the knowledge to, to know what to do. Um, and so that's probably where I started to think more about dementia and really become a bit more um, interested in that area because it was such an unknown for me and it was I found it really interesting even though I didn't know anything about it. Um, and... Yeah, so personal care worker throughout uni and then in my mental health role, I ended up getting the position as the older person's mental health clinician. So I was the clinician in the team that took most of the older person's referrals and would do, yeah, most of the older person's assessments whenever they'd come in. And I just really loved it. It was, it was such... It was quite different from adult mental health and working with youth because it was so complex. You know, people were coming in their 80s with so many medical comorbidities and then they'd have these mental health symptoms and it was just, it was like an investigator, you know. There was so much to, to look at and to work out and go, right, why is this person behaving in the way they are and what's going on for them and, you know, is it something medical that's causing it or is it, you know, is it something else? And... Yeah, I really enjoyed that and I was lucky enough to work with some really um, amazing clinicians, one in particular a social worker who taught me a lot about sort of older people in the mental health field and, yeah, I just really loved it. Um, so I then thought, well, let's sort of not have a break for mental health but let's maybe break up my week and do a day a week in the local aged care facility here. And so, yeah, I started doing one day a week there and then I was back to four days a week in mental health. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's break it right down to basics. 
What is dementia? What is dementia? Um, so dementia is a syndrome and it's caused by lots of different diseases. There are over 100 types of causes of dementia um, and it is basically where um, it's a disease that affects someone's brain in terms of their memory, their thinking, their personality, their behaviour and so much so that it causes um, sort of a decrease in someone's ability to do activities of daily life, really. Um, there's no cure for most forms of dementia, so and it is a progressive illness. And are there any yeah. treat? Are there any treatments that kind of slow it up at present? Because obviously we can't cure it per se. Is there any treatments out there at the moment that kind of maybe slow the degradation? Yeah, there are certain types of medication um, for certain types of dementia. Um, and they are seen to help improve the symptoms that people are sort of experiencing, but not necessarily slow the progression of it down. Yep. That's so more individual symptoms that the medications are looking at rather than yeah, the dementia so, as a whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because it's something that I haven't had a lot of experience professional experience with i did one placement in which is essentially home health um so we did see some people with dementia during that but probably only a couple in the how long was i there seven weeks ish so my experience is very limited and what grabbed my attention is a lot of the stuff you are quite active on instagram with your uh teaming with dementia instagram page and a lot of the stuff that i hear i see you post i saw a lot of links with mental health. Yeah. Um, particularly, I think it might have been today, actually, you posted about the language being used around dementia. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Talking about, you know, essentially off-the-cuff comments that people would probably use, you know, I can't even remember what some of them were, but like, you know, that they're losing their marbles and yeah. those kinds of comments and about how, you know, we need to be more respectful and we need to get rid of these terms and, you know, I guess be a little bit more professional about it. Um, and I see the very similar co things happen in mental health as well, where people will throw off the cuff kind of comments, similar, probably very similar to that, uh, around people or about people with mental health conditions. And unfortunately, it, it tends to perpetuate a lot of the stigma that's already there. And, you know, that's a, a, one of the big reasons why there's a, not just me, but a lot of people are pointing towards healthcare professionals as one of the leading sort of causes of some of this stigma. Mm. Why do you think it's a, a cultural thing, those kinds of terms, or do you think it's because I, I think in mental health, a lot of the time with healthcare workers, it's almost like a desensitization to, or, or maybe probably better describe it as a depersonalization in a lot of instances, especially in acute mental health where people tend to after a long sort of repetitive working on the ward kind of thing it almost feels like i think they lose the the fact that this is still this is a person that they're working with is it is it similar in that way where people end up tending to describe the symptoms like with the terms like that as opposed to you know the people themselves definitely yeah i think 
like you said, we we sort of do become desensitised in a way, um, particularly in residential care. I've noticed that it is still very much task-focused and so you go in, you start at 7am, you do your breakfast, you do your toileting, you do your showering, you have lunch and it's very structured that you just get so into your routine that you do sort of forget that you are looking after a person that is more than just a dementia. You know, they are, they have an identity underneath that dementia, but you are so sort of fixed in your routine and it is busy and, you know, aged care, there's short staff and all of those other issues that come into it, but you do, you do become desensitised and sometimes it's hard to take a step back and look at the broader picture of who you are caring for. And I don't think people mean those terms or say those terms to be degrading or mm. to be nasty. Um, no, no. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a bit of a cultural thing too, yeah. And, yeah, it's unfortunate because I think a lot of those people are probably <sighs> doing very amazing work. It's It's yeah. just something that, you know, either they hear more senior clinicians say it or, you know, even sometimes family and friends might say it, so the clinician feels like it's okay to, you know, almost like give them permission to use those kinds of terms yeah. around family. But, yeah, I think it's – and, again, like you said, I don't think people are doing it maliciously. It, it is I, – I feel – I think something that we just kind of need to be more cognizant of, and I think if we are, then we wouldn't well, – clinicians wouldn't use that sort of language as much um yeah i agree and i think particularly for me as a younger person in aged care you know there is a a large cohort of older workers and who have been there for years and so the terminology the language we use has changed significantly in the last sort of 20 even 20 years 30 years and so you know, for me, I've been working with people who have worked in the industry for their whole life and they still sort of use some of those terms that aren't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be used, but I've felt sometimes I can't stand up to them and say, hey, that's wrong. And I think that's probably the experience of many other people. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, we, I've had way back in like episode 10, um, had Samantha Bowen on who... Um, you know, works trying to increase the number of young people working in aged care. That's her. That's her thing. That's what her sole purpose at the moment is pushing for that. And I do wonder whether have you noticed a change in the workforce, uh, like the age, I guess, of the workforce around aged care since you've been involved in it. Like, is it is it trending towards uh, are younger people coming into it or? I think, I think I have noticed a bit of a change, actually, when I look back to when I was a personal care worker, which was oh, maybe nearly 10 years ago I started that. So definitely seeing more younger people. But I have noticed for those younger people that they do find it challenging when they're working with older staff who have been working there for a long time and are quite set in their ways. And sometimes I think that, maybe puts the younger ones off and then they leave. Mm. And so, yeah, that, that's a bit of a challenge as well. I think that was that was one of the things Sam was saying as well is like how can we 
retain these. We got, we, we're getting younger workers in, but we need to be able to retain them there because they're either being burned out or pushed out or made to feel alienated by the older staff. And again, I, I, I don't think it's anything that is happening del- in some cases. It might be deliberate. I don't know. But I would like to think that it's not. <laughs> You know, a deliberate thing yeah. by older workers to get all the young people out of aged care kind of thing, but because <laughs> uh, they're going to need them soon. <laughs> but I, I think it's again that's a that's a link I see very close with with mental health in that there's a or in the mental health jobs I've worked at anyway. I can't speak for all mental health, obviously, but the jobs I've worked at there's a strong culture put in there in those places by the staff that have been there for a long time. And sometimes it's not a very nice culture, which is, you know, I can, I've been there, I I can speak of my experience with that. Um, But I I think one of the things that we need to do, OT as a whole, uh, is really support our new grads better to, we we do quite well, I think, of supporting our new grads in uh, almost assimilating. So they can, you know, learn the job as quickly as possible and get on their feet and that kind of thing. But I think we also need to put some things into place to help support them with their identity mm-hmm. and and maintaining their identity. Mm-hmm. I see so many new grads nowadays coming out with such a strong occupation-based identity and two years later they've either left the profession or they're, you know, writing up something I don't know doing something completely not OT related and I I just like what like what happened I'm like what happened it's been like two years if less than two years like what happened to these people so I think we're there's all the supports I see a lot of it going in around new grads is all around supporting them to get on their feet and you know feel like they're not drowning which is a natural feeling in any time you go into a new job but I think we also need to start having a look at how can we support these these clinicians to maintain their occupational identity when they go into these places? And I think that's why a lot of the time in mental health and possibly in aged care as well, we find them going in, they might have a really strong occupational identity when they go in and then, for lack of a better term, it gets beaten out of them by the culture that's already there. And I think particularly with mental health, in a community setting, I don't know what it's like up in Queensland, but where I worked, I was in what they call a multi-class role. So I was in a role where it could be an OT, a mental health social worker, a mental health nurse or a psychologist. And so your identity already has sort of been shut down in a way being in that role. And it is hard to, to maintain that and uh to continue to promote occupation. Like I remember when I first started in, in one team in the community, one of the clinicians said to me, oh, you're an OT, you'll just go and play tennis with your clients all day because their experience was that the previous OT was there when and played tennis with one of their clients. And I was like, awesome, that is that is so occupation-based. Yeah. Like that. That's what we do. Yeah. But that person's understanding of OT was obviously not there. It's very so, narrow. Yeah, yeah. But I thought tennis was a great way to get that person out of the house, get them dressed, make sure that I've got some sort of routine in their day. 
Yeah, especially if it's, you know, something they're passionate about. They love tennis or they're either learning it or getting back into it or like yeah. for sure I would I would do that. <laughs> like and that was but that was always part of the fun of the job for me was being able to go and do these things with people. Yeah. And, you know, supporting them to take those first steps into uh-huh. in back into life, really. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I can I've definitely seen that as well with um People sort of get one experience or observe one experience and then all of a sudden that's everything that the profession yeah. is to them. So <laughs> at least in this instance, it was something that was occupation-based. That's it. And not just, oh, OTs help get people to send a link or something. <laughs> Which we do. Yeah, yeah but that's very small on the list of total <laughs> things that we could potentially do with someone. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, what sort of thing? So, you you were you have private practice now? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I'm still employed about nine hours a week with a local residential care facility here, and then I subcontract to other residential care facilities and see people in the community as a sole practitioner, really. So, um. Yeah, I started that last year, coming up probably 80 months that I started, well, since I um, started and got my first client. So with dementia, because this is something, again, I know nothing about. So if a person is, I don't know, I'm assuming there's different stages um, of the the illness, uh, but say they're, you know, getting quite forgetful, you know, fairly well along that progression. How does that affect occupation-based practice? Because I would think that if there's, say, uh, with, say, vascular dementia, where there's actual deterioration of the brain, therefore, you know, it's going to affect how the person thinks and processes information, that kind of stuff. Does, would that, that would have an impact on, you know, the things that they may find value in and that kind of stuff how does that affect what you actually do with them um yeah they i think for me a lot of the time particularly for people in that sort of moderate to severe stage so it's sort of we sort of class the dementia stages into three so you've got your early middle and advanced stages and when i think about the residential care um, where we see people in those sort of usually moderate to severe stages, it's all about being in the moment um, and it's all about the here and now because they're not going to remember half the time what they've done. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's very much about, about that. Um, so it's not necessarily like a rehabilitation land, like you're not trying to improve. Are you trying to improve their memory or are you trying to, like, what's the, I guess, the the target of the therapy that you're putting in there? I see it as improving quality of life and we do that through medical occupation and so that can be anything to anyone. Um, but often what happens when people have dementia is they, they start to lose their identity because they start to... Um, not engage in those hobbies and interests that they once used to do. You know, they're no longer working. Um, and so 
And often they don't have that initiation to do things, so mm. you need to help them with that. They, a lot of the time, are quite apathetic. They really don't have a whole lot of motivation to do things, particularly in the moderate to severe stages. And so, yeah, a lot of it is around not so much rehabilitation, but it's around getting them involved in meaningful activity to promote that increased quality of life. Because a lot of them, if you left them, would probably not do much throughout their day. Um, okay. Or if they do, they would find it hard to, um, I guess, yeah, engage in those tasks in a in a sequenced way or in a way that they used to because their brains are not working like they used to. I've I've seen, and this could be completely like all all wives' tales. But I, I've seen a lot around, uh, you know, the old adage of use it or lose it. So people always looking for like the, oh, my God, I need to do this to prevent getting dementia, you know, down the track kind of thing. But one of the things I, I saw, I can't even remember where I saw it. It wasn't that long ago. was the someone looking at the impact of people going into a nursing facility on the either advancement or development of dementia in the first place and that got me thinking around well is the i guess loss of occupation almost like chicken or the egg so is it uh, are they develop are they losing a lot of their occupations when they go into the nursing home and then that exacerbates the advancement of dementia or are they you know doing that because the the dementia is developing and then lose their occupations before they end up getting put into a nursing facility do you have any thought you're looking at me like you have something really like (laughs) profound and i'm excited (laughs) (laughs) you have a perspective on this i can tell i think it's a bit of both yeah i don't think you could say it's one or the other but Definitely we do see that when people come into residential aged care that their identity gets lost Um, and, you know, they're in this home with people they don't know, people who they have different interests, you know, with. They don't share the same interests. They have different personalities and it's almost like they're expected to mould into a system that you know, or everyone's meant to mould into this same system. And, you know, and then that means that they they don't get to do the things that they used to do. They don't have the freedom that they used to have. And, you know, likely at home they weren't doing a whole lot anyway. Mm -hmm. But they still had stimulation and um, more opportunity to do the things that they they wanted and needed to do, um, whereas in residential aged care, the care is great, but they don't necessarily have that choice that they would have at home. So like the occupational opportunities yeah. that they might have at yeah. home. Definitely, yeah. And, you know, a lot of the time it's really hard like when residents come in some of them don't have family members that are close to them. They either passed away or they never had children. And so finding that whole life history can be really challenging, particularly yeah, yeah. when they can't remember it themselves. And so developing a sort of lifestyle plan around them um, can be quite challenging and take a while. 
And as their dementia progresses, their needs change and their interests change. And so it's this, you know, ever-evolving sort of, yeah, journey of, of change. And one day they might like one thing and then the next day it doesn't work or they don't want to do it. And so we're forever trying to find something that they find meaningful and enjoy. And, um, yeah, I think... It's a huge change for them. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. I think, I mean, I've had grandparents that uh, went through, like went to, into nursing homes um, towards the end of their life and that sort of thing. And oh, some nursing homes seem to have like heaps and heaps of activities that they were trying to run and whether or not it seemed to be like a set program. It wasn't obviously like tailored to each individual, oh. but it was, you know, things that, older people traditionally may have engaged in things like, you know, crocheting groups and it wasn't compulsory or anything. People could go if they wanted to and there'd be singing groups and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But then I've seen the other where it's literally almost like a hospital with very limited engagement with anyone except nurses or family if they came to visit. And the other thing I was I was thinking too with regards to what you were saying before around occupational opportunities at home is I've not seen a nursing home or a, an aged care facility room that is kind of homely, if that makes sense. Like, yes, some homes are definitely not set up in a sort of a safe manner with rugs and all that sort of stuff around. People can trip or hurt themselves or just not access some parts of the house. But there's a lot of other things, photos and memorabilia and memories within the house itself that I think sometimes we, as OTs, not necessarily forget, but we don't think of engagement in occupation as actually sort of reminiscing as being one of those things that people engage in quite regularly. Mm -hmm. For good or bad, it's something that I do a lot of. Mm -hmm. um, and I can only imagine... You know, this is something that people at that age would also engage in a lot of, especially when, you know, physically there might be some limitations on things they can do, but, you know, reminiscing on good times and telling stories and that sort of thing might be, would be something that would be really important to them. And I think sometime potentially uh, taking them out of the house, which may have been, you know, the scene for a lot of those memories and kind of thing, almost is us depriving them of that occupation. Definitely. And having photos around the house is a great visual prompt to go, oh, hey, you remember when that happened? Mm. And, you know, people with dementia need those prompts. They need that, that cueing because of the nature of the disease. Yeah. Is there any kind of order to, or general order to, uh, I guess the different symptoms that present, like when they present, like is there any things that sort of start presenting that you would maybe observe earlier than, you know, towards the end? Like do they start forgetting time, place sooner than, than start forgetting, you know, family member's name? Like is there any sort of general progression for that stuff? Um, not really. And I always say that no two people with dementia are ever the same because – it is so variable mm. with what they can experience. But I think if you look at, um, you know, the sort of 
different types of dementia. So with Alzheimer's, it's, you know, losing or not being um, able to concentrate as long as they, what they used to getting names, um, forgetting appointments, becoming disorientated in the shopping centre, those types of things are what you might see in sort of the early stage. But when you look at something for um, a dementia called frontal lobe dementia or frontotemporal dementia, often it's that you see the personality change first as opposed to the short-term memory loss of the you know, memory impairment. So it's it's different for the different types of dementias, but with all climbers, that's the most common, around 70% of um, dementia is caused by Alzheimer's disease and that's when you do tend to see some of those things around, yeah, forgetting people's names, not being able to, or forgetting words and sentences and not being able to attend or concentrate, reading a book or, yeah, those types of things. I think I've seen that. Uh, the sorry, the frost that got stuck on the frontal lobe uh, dementia. I'm mm-hmm. sure uh, a person, one of the people I used to work or worked with while I was on placement, that was one of the things that their family was saying was the main thing was all of a sudden she just had never her whole life, but all of a sudden would just get like really angry. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then would start an argument but would forget sort of what she was actually arguing after a few minutes and would settle down and but apparently she had like for her whole life had always been like the calmest like quietest little like person um yeah i remember that being that that being quite fascinating and they would often present to mental health when i was working in mental health yeah um, because of that personality that behavior changed and often it was or meant that they were becoming quite anxious or quite aggressive, whether that's verbally or physically, mm-hmm. and there was risk. So it's traditionally thought of as sort of an old person's condition, but can it present younger? Like are yeah. there younger people that get dementia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if you've heard of the term younger onset dementia. So that's where someone develops dementia before the age of 65 and that does occur. I don't know the stats exactly um, but it's definitely out there Um, and completely devastating because if you think about it, these are people that are still working. They're, They're often in that sandwich generation, not always, but they're caring for their children who are still dependent on them and then they're also caring for their parents. And so financially there's lots of challenges if they have to stop working. Um, yeah, it, it's quite a, a specialised area of dementia care but it, there's a lot of other things that you need to think about when working with someone with younger, younger onset dementia. And does it, like, symptomise, does it present very similar to the older, just obviously in a younger person or is it different altogether? Yeah, again, it depends on the cause of it, but, um, yeah, depends on the cause, but quite similar, I think. So, uh, in theory, what the OT would do with uh, a person with younger onset dementia would be fairly similar to the types of things that they would do with anyone? Pretty much, yeah, because it is, you know, we are all about person-centred care and, um yeah, we sort of take the client's lead in what they 
want and need to do and what's going to help them have a better quality of life. So I don't think it's any different in terms of how we approach the situation. We, we just need to be more aware and more mindful of the, the different challenges that they face in those different age groups. So with your teeming with dementia, I suspect there's a story behind the name itself uh, and the little slogan, if we can't beat it, let's join it. What's, what's the story? What are we, what are we joining? What, are we, what can't we beat? What are we joining? <laughs> well, currently there's no cure for most forms of dementia, so we can't beat it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of researchers out there that are trying to work out a cure, but you know, if you've ever met someone with dementia who has something set in their mind, you can't challenge that and we can't beat it. You know, we're in an argument or if we're in a conversation with someone with dementia, what they believe to be true is true in their world. So we need to join with them. Um, and I think, you know, we need to, yeah, team up with dementia because it's, we can't, we can't cure it um, and we need to work with it. We need to run with it. So how, how do we, because I know that that itself, the example you just gave there is something that I see in mental health as well and there's a question I get asked by a lot of students as well is, you know, for, for example, for someone with, uh, who's presenting with hallucinations or delusions, they often get told, oh, we can't, we can't challenge it. We have to like, like what do we do? So how does teaming up with dementia, what does it actually look like in practice? Um, I think a lot of it for me is around communication and caregiving. So as a caregiver, it's it's not us and them, it's not us versus them mm-hmm. because that creates a barrier straight away. And it's it's about when we're communicating with someone with dementia, um, to not try and have the upper hand okay. um, because it's not going to work. You're going to cause more problems. Um, so it's about knowing how to be creative and how to get on their side and join with them on their journey um, because it's a team game. Have you got any tips for how to do that? Because that sounds really difficult. Yeah, it is very difficult. Um, yeah, I, I struggle with it every day. Um, it's, it is a really hard thing and I think when you feel like you've, you know, you've done something really good or you've responded in a way that's been really helpful, the next day you try it and it completely goes Just wrong. Just yep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you get quite disheartened. But I think... I think, you know, what's an example? You know, when someone asks to go home in an aged care facility, they what is it that they're what is it that they're seeking? You know, they, they want to go home. What does home mean to them? Is it that they want to go home to the home they lived at when they were 16? Is it that they're seeking familiarity? Is it that they're seeking you know, connection with someone because home to them probably means familiarity and connection and being with loved ones. And so I think it's important to understand why they're asking what they are um, because it doesn't always mean that they want to go home. Yep. 
it can mean that they just want to connect with you and feel loved and know that they're safe. Yep. Yeah, so knowing the why and really trying to understand why they're asking that I think is important. That's that's really awesome, actually, because I recorded not long ago an episode about uh, OTs needing to explore meaning more. Uh, it's something that I think that is often kind of, when we talk about meaning, it's often almost tokenistic. Uh, mm. And I think it's also possibly one of the most important constructs that we have as OTs. Because you know we have occupation, we know that occupations need to have meaning for the person, but meaning often I, in OTs that I've spoken to is often assumed. It's like, oh, you know, they they like their family because that's their family. Like, who doesn't like their family, kind of thing. Um, that's a bad example, but uh, <laughs> I, I think oh, we yeah. don't spend enough time actually. You know, enacting our client our client centered practice kind of protocols per se, uh, in order to really explore meaning for the individual. And I think what you just described there, especially with going home, because I would imagine that uh, a new grad would find even that seemingly harmless sort of comment from someone really difficult. So, how do you respond to that? Well, no, you can't go home, or you live here now, or this is your home, or like how how do you respond to that? And I think being able to recognize that, yes, they're talking about home, but what is home to them? Because we know, you know, there's all sorts of cliche stuff around, you know, home is where the heart is or home is where you hang your hat and all that sort of stuff. So we know that home in general is, you know, essentially a social construct that we've made. So what does it mean to them? Uh, I think that's really, really valuable advice and even not just for aged care as well. For for a lot of people, people asking for, I need this, I need that, I want to do this, I want to do that. Why? Why? What is it that we can really nut down? And it might be that, you know, in the end, it is the, the, the house itself or it might be that they want, you know, a feeling that they have when they were at home or the, a memory that they're having from home that made them feel a certain way. In general, humans do a lot of things just because of the way it makes us feel. So uh, being able to explore the why and sort of explore the meaning for that person, for everything, for lots of things, is something that I'm a, a big advocate for within the profession. And it obviously sounds like you might be on the same same path as me with regards to that, which is awesome. Yes, yes, no, I, yeah, I agree with you, definitely. Um and everyone's so different, aren't they? I mean, what's meaningful to you and what home means to you is going to be completely different to what home means to me potentially. Um, and and I think that's why it's really important to know our residents really well um, and, and spend the time to get to know them, get to know their history, get to know what they did for work. What did they do at 4pm when they were in their 30s? You know, it's 4 o'clock and they're in their 80s and they've got dementia and they're asking to go somewhere. Where would have they gone at that time when they were in their 30s? Because often what happens is people, they come in and out of, um, not consciousness, but they... Lucidity, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, sometimes they know that they are becoming forgetful and that they're in an aged facility and sometimes they think that they 
uh, out for lunch in a restaurant and, you know, they're going to catch a bus home. You know, they, they come in and out of that. So, yeah, it, it's really important to know their history. And do you, do you find, because a couple of the times, one of the cases I do remember where probably the last person I worked with who had dementia was on an acute mental health ward and the only reason that we worked it out and sent or well, like referred for some dementia-type screening was he had this whole backstory and he was going to go back and live with his girlfriend at this house, blah, blah, blah. And then I just felt something was a bit off and I did a bit of research and the house didn't exist and neither did the girlfriend and all of this other stuff. And it was like, we can't discharge this guy just yet because the story isn't adding up. So how do you find like being able to explore that history with someone who might not be remembering it correctly yeah that's where the relationship with the residents loved ones or their family members is really important um and i think it's you know it it never happens but it would be awesome if before people got dementia they wrote their whole life story and you had it there waiting to go for when you were planning their care but yeah, it's um, someone said, I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, you find out more about a resident when you go to their funeral than what you ever knew about them when you're caring for them. And it's so true. It's, you know, it's sad, that you, true, yeah. Yeah. And if only you knew everything that was, that was in that eulogy before you, you know, started caring for them, like how amazing care could you provide because you just know so much more. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a big challenge because they can't always recall certain things, but you can tend to get the gist of, of you know, what they're interested in and their, their routines and what, what was valuable to them. But, yeah, it, it's very much about connecting with their family and their, their spouse and their loved one to help you with that. And are you so you get some, for example, if you get some information about something they may have used to do from family uh, that they haven't been able to recall, is that something you can, you know, use to remind them or like how do you use that information? That a family member has given? Yeah. Um, oh, I think it, you know, sometimes, you know, I might do a lifestyle assessment with a resident and one day they are completely off, they're having an off day and they can't remember a whole lot of, you know, um, things about their history or those sort of minor details, but then on another day they can. So over time, you know, you're not just assessing them on that one day. So yeah. over time we tend to get a fair bit of information and just by observing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're interacting with other residents and stuff. But, um I think it's more just with the family giving information. It's more about getting understanding of of that person's identity, who they were, what they valued, and then based on that, you can then look at okay, what activities might help this person? Um, what things might they enjoy doing here to fuel their day? It's I. I... I would find that interesting in that it is really about you kind of almost feel like a bit of a detective and you 
you're taking little bits of information from here and there and then trying to sort of like a puzzle almost like put together this bigger picture of of a, of a person and their history and essentially how they how did they get to this point in their life like what have they done what have they experienced what have they been through what is you know who have they interacted with who have they touched have they got kids family are they close with their family like all of that stuff and you're trying to get it from multiple sources of information which also has the added challenge of coming from multiple perspectives and having you know multiple perspectives put over that information before you even get close to it and that's i think that's one of the other sort of similarities i see with mental health and sometimes we're talking with or we're working with people who aren't currently sort of thinking the best uh they're not currently uh for lack of a better term existing in our reality they they've they've got their own thing going on and that's where their head's at and we're trying to get information about you know the past which they're not they're not remembering or not remembering in the same way they might normally with if they were well um so again linking with families and friends and you know housemates and neighbors and whoever else that they allow us to 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 talk with and trying to sort of pull all these little bits of information. And I think that's one of the things, thinking uh, about my uh, students at present, sort of first and second year students, is it's difficult. One of the things that they haven't, I don't feel, some of them anyway, haven't quite got their head around is they, they're learning the sort of process that OTs go through to, to do all this. But I, I think the time aspect is still a little bit lost because I haven't really sort of put it into practice with real clients. And sometimes this stuff takes a long time. Like you don't just go in there and, you know, here's a list of the magic questions you have to ask to get all of the information you need to to get. Sometimes building that relationship, building that therapeutic relationship just takes time. Mm -hmm. Do you find, I would find that, potentially even more difficult working with someone with dementia where like if I'm working with anyone else I see them you know so I build a little bit of that relationship on day one the next day I build on that a little bit more the next day I build on that a little bit more but with someone who maybe has memory difficulties or processing difficulties you're not just building on what you did last time because that may not remember at all or it may be remembered differently to what happened or is it difficult build, like building those therapeutic relationships with people who have dementia or is there a different technique that, that you use to do that? Or Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I never feel like when I'm going into particular memory support unit that I'm meeting that person for the first time. They might not remember my name or who, I'm there, who I am or what I'm there for. Mm-hmm. But I think it often comes down to that connection that you feel with them and that the, your approach, really. If you make them feel safe and welcome and as though you care about them, they're going to welcome you in, mm. you know, into their life, even though they've met, you know, they saw you yesterday. Um, it's, you know, maybe it's like they're meeting you for the first time, but, you know, I'll often go into the memory support unit and there'll be residents that I work quite closely with 
who will start to follow me around. And for me, that means, hey, they do recognise who I am or mm-hmm. I am somewhat familiar to them. They don't know my name or what, what I'm here for, but we have built that connection in yeah. some way. So, it's yeah, I think it's about, about the connection and how you make them feel. And if, if they feel comfortable around you, then that rapport's there. Because I do wonder about that too is uh, and the reason I was sort of thinking maybe it's a different technique and that that potentially is it is like I don't know like whether dementia sort of, I don't know how you'd say it, not attacks but affects um, all different areas of the brain equally or if, or if it's like, just like targeted areas of the brain. Obviously, it would probably be dependent on the type of dementia I'd assume. But if, if the memory is affected, you can still like – that that memory may not be sort of logged correctly, but like you said, you can have an emotional connection or make them feel safe and that feeling is still there. And I guess the only thing I could equate that to would be almost like if we experience sort of deja vu where you know, kind of like, wait, I've, I've felt this before, I know, but I can't put my finger on it where there's still some kind of connection deep in the in the brain somewhere but we can't quite put our finger on it so i think i i think that technique like you was just just described about making that connection and making the connection really quality and making them feel safe and i guess then you've got that emotional connection for uh, as well as if you know if the memory of you meeting them it's uh, uh, at the time isn't i don't know cemented in as well so at least there's that as well which is it's probably probably something we should do with everyone really well we all have that innate need to connect don't we we all we are pack animals we we want to be with other people most of us <laughs> um and and that means connecting and feeling as though we are you know part of a broader community part of a group and I mean, from a from an evolutionary standpoint, like you just said, like we're pack animals, we have this uh, this need for connection. But part of that that connection, with regards to who we connect with, from you know an evolutionary point of view, is we connect with our tribe. We connect with people that make us safe, which make you know our family safe, those of us close, those close to us safe. So, like the two main things that we're looking at from that point of view are: are we safe, and are we contributing? And that's, from an evolutionary point of view, generally how humans picked their tribe. And if you didn't fit that, then back then you'd be sort of removed from the tribe. But from an individual's point of view, you wouldn't feel part of the tribe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, touching on making people feel safe when you first meet them is probably very much tapping into that almost like a biological mechanism for for connecting. Oh, for sure. Like, and I've had a recent example of a resident who has recently transitioned into the residential care facility and, you know, they're seen as the challenging resident, um, the one that, you know, is the difficult one. And I don't like using those terms because I think, um, you know, it's the dementia that's talking. It's not that person doing it in a malicious way or doing it because they want to peeve everyone off, mm-hmm. but it is a resident in a challenging situation. And what I've noticed with this particular resident is that, number one, they are bored 
they're sitting in the dining room observing everyone else and they don't feel connected to other people. And, you know, they, and I think it's sort of a, you know, they're slagging off the other residents or other staff using, you know, nasty words. And so other residents and staff want to stay away from them. And so naturally they're going to feel isolated because of sort of, you know, because of the dementia, it's led to other people wanting to avoid them. Mm. And so they are getting that feedback that, hey, maybe I'm not feeling a part of this group. And, you know, I'll go in there and this resident will say, everyone hates me here, no one likes me, I want to go home. And I I say to her, tell me about your home. What is it like? And she always says to me, it's where all of my nice friends are. And it just makes me think, wow, you, you want to go somewhere where you have people who make you feel safe and as though you're accepted. And, yeah. That's a big thing for her, I think. Yeah, and I think our, our tolerances of not having that are obviously all very individual. They're very different, but the grassroots, that's what we all want. Like exactly. everyone wants, you know, that, that's the whole, like we make friends by the very, at the very sort of root of it, by common interests. We're looking for people that have common interests to us. That's, that's what we do uh, as human beings. So. I find it like we're sort of at the start when you're talking about like people just don't have anything to do or their interests, the individual interests are taken away often when they go into a nursing home. Why why are there not more OTs wanting to sort of break down these doors? Like this is this is core every you pick pick any theory in OT and you'll find it sort of in these settings by the sound of it. Definitely. I don't know why there's no, you know, there's just not enough OTs in aged care and that's that's a fact really and I don't know why. Well, I think part of it is actually because of the system that we have to work under. Mm-hmm. So um, the current sort of funding instrument that we go by is very much around allied health staff and that's OTs and physios providing pain treatment. And so... I know, you know, other OTs that work in aged care that aren't as fortunate as me are really just um, employed to do assessment and pain treatments, massage, putting the tens on, maybe a bit of paraffin wax, and that's sort of their day, whereas where I work, I'm quite lucky that I get to do all the other fun OT stuff as well. Yeah. Um, you know, things like environmental modifications, assessment, continuous quality improvement. I get to do staff training around dementia and mental handling, um, but often weasel some dementia training into that yeah. <laughs> in a very sneaky way. Um, but I know across the board that's what OTs are seen to do. They come in and do their pay treatment. Yep. Are there any models you've seen, like maybe even from other countries, that are like doing it better or...? in your perspective, doing things that, you know, you wish you could do here kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Well, over in the Netherlands, in Weiss, they have the Hogway Dementia Village. I don't know if you've heard of that. I think I've heard. This is where they've set up like a whole village where there's shops and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and it's very much the in thing in dementia care at the moment. There's one in Queensland, I think it's called New Direction Care, and there's one in Tasmania as well that I know of in Australia. Yep. 
But that's sort of like a village model of care um, and it's where they try and promote community connection and interaction. So not just having, I mean, many nursing homes or aged care facilities are very isolated from the community. Um, and so these sort of models of care are looking at how can we bring the community to the residents living in these facilities. And they also look at segregating people or housing people in terms of their interests and their life history and their, um, you know, where they come from. You know, if they try and house European people in the same house, people who worked maybe um, in a trade, carpenters, electricians, house them together, people who were mothers, you know, or housewives or, you know, soldiers or whatever, they house them together. Um, in you know, according to their, their likes and interests. And I think that's a really, it's a good model, yeah. So that, that because I've heard of that, but obviously the stuff I've seen has just been overseas. So we actually have similar things in Australia already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in Australia now, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's wicked. I would, imag- uh, I would imagine that would be, just thinking from a business point of view, that would be quite an expensive model to roll out. Yeah, I think it, it very much, yeah, it would be. Because it sounds like the, the two in Australia are private? I would think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know a whole lot about them, but, yeah, it would be very expensive to run. Just thinking of the setup. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just thinking of the, the actual construction in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, but it's a very attractive. You know, I don't think they would struggle to find residents to, you know, jump on board because it's a very attractive. Yeah, it seems appealing, mm. and mm. It seems like it'd be a lot less boring than sitting in a nursing home and reading books and eating your dinner at five o'clock. Playing bingo. Yeah, playing bingo or knitting or whatever else they other activities they have. Because I, yeah, I mean, the one I've seen had you know, had its own hairdressers. It had its own little supermarkets. It had you know cafes, and it was very much looking at, I guess, for lack of a better term, leading a normal life, but with the supports in there. You know, like I, the one I saw, I think was closed, like it, to the outside world. So. People couldn't just sort of wander off and get hurt or get lost and that kind of stuff. Um, so it had supports in there, you know, for the needs of someone with dementia, but was trying to, as much as possible, enable them to lead a life that they probably would have been trying or leading before the dementia came on. Yeah. And particularly there's a documentary or a sort of little YouTube clip on the one in weeks and they don't have any locked doors, actually. Oh, really? And I've actually found that there's been a reduction in the use of antipsychotic medication for some of those responsive behaviours that they see, some of that agitation and aggression. So it just goes to show how important the environment is in wow. someone's quality of life and reducing some of those, you know, behavioural and psychological, psychological symptoms of dementia. Just goes to show how important engagement and occupation can be. Yeah. And how important OTs are in Yes, OTs, if you're listening, <laughs> pick age care. Because um, another model I've seen, I think I saw it on TV last night, was, uh, and it was in Australia, was a, a program they were running where they were te- uh, pairing up 
elderly people with little kids. Yeah. As like a bu- kind of like a buddy system. And they were like, yeah. And they were tracking, they were like, I don't know how long it was, but they like tracked these these pairings up over a few weeks. Uh, yeah. And they would do all the, actually like the little kids would go along and play lawn bowls. And, but they were talking about some of the benefits and there was one resident I remember as an old fellow and apparently he was pretty cranky a lot of the time and didn't want to do anything with anyone and didn't, was having a lot of falls. And the little the little lad that was with him, I think he probably would have been like four at the most, I reckon. He was he was little. Uh was going along and the guy started coming out of his room. He started going to physio. Uh so he was like doing strengthening stuff, a lot of walking, um, and that sort of stuff. And the little fellow would do it with him and was cheering him on. And the last bit I saw was they were playing lawn bowls and the old fellow actually did have a fall, but he built up enough strength that he didn't hurt himself and he he was able to, well, with help, like got back up and kept playing kind of thing. It didn't worry him as much. It didn't break anything. He didn't hurt himself. He was fine. Uh, it was kind of cute because the little little kid was like really worried. Are you okay? Are you okay? But, yeah, that, that model, I was like, that's awesome. Like even just having that, again, that connection with another person, the fact that it was probably – without exaggeration, close to an 80-year age difference, didn't matter. Like, the fact that there was that connection there and the, the old fellow, uh, you know, obviously felt very motivated having the, the kid there. I think that I saw that and I'm like, but that's something we, for on terms of cost, would be much lower than, you know, obviously setting up a whole a whole village. That's something that could be done... Quite ill. I mean, we need daycare centers and we need older people to have connection. Like, it seems like a win win. I think it's not too far away. We'll start seeing that sort of model being implemented and rolled out across Australia. I think it's, is it the nursing home for four year olds? Is that the one that's. Uh, that sounds familiar. I couldn't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but that does sound like it could be. But it's probably on, is it, was it ABC? Uh, yeah, it was either ABC or SBS. I can't remember. Yeah, no, I watched that. It was fantastic. And, yeah, because they did pre and post measures and they were looking at, I remember them looking at the geriatric depression scale and they noticed quite a difference in school and post, mm. post that experiment for quite a few of them. Um, and there was one example, one episode I remember watching and all the kids were in the, in the water at the beach and all the oldies are sort of sitting up on the, the bank just watching the kids. And one of the little kids said to his buddy, come on, come and play with me down in the water. And, and he sort of said, no, I'm too old for that. I'm not going to, if I get down there, I won't get that back up or I'll have a fall. And anyway, the kid somehow really him, got him down there. <laughs> he didn't have a fall. So here's this 90-year-old with a group of four-year-olds in the water splashing around. And then next minute, all of the 90-year-old's mates started coming in. So they're all in the water. It was uh, yeah, yeah that's awesome because I've seen other similar things with uh, pets uh, and I've seen also I've seen another one that was with robotic pets but that was getting a bit out there for me um, but I've seen similar thing with pets but I think you, as I think pets in that instance almost replicate that connection but I don't think it's as two way as like it wouldn't be as quality a connection as you get with another human yeah 
Yeah. So yes, there's definitely benefit and we all know there's benefit to having pets. There's tons of research out there about it, reducing anxiety and reducing depression and that kind of thing, which is really good. Obviously, why not have both? Have connection with humans and have pets. But I think the model, the model with the little kids was like, I couldn't have thought of a better model myself if I had tried. Like it just fits so well for both of them. I think the little kids, I don't think there was any measures in that show about any benefits per se for the kids, but I would imagine same as like any kids, they like, they like attention. They like to play. They like to learn. Um, you know, kids hang out with their grandparents. There, there are a lot of memories are formed, you know, hanging out with their grandparents. And I can still tell you some of the stories and stuff that my granddad told me from, you know, when I was five or six, like their, you know, life lessons that you learn from that generation. So I could imagine if they were to look at the, the kids involved in that show as well, there's probably, I mean, it might be a little difficult now, but down the track, if they went back to them. Do you remember this? Do you, you know, what do you think of it? I'd imagine there would be benefits that they'd probably find for those kids as well. Yeah, I reckon there were, I reckon they did, they had a child psychologist on that show, if it's the same one I'm thinking about. And I reckon they looked at maybe some developmental milestones and social behaviour. I could have. I didn't see the whole thing. I only saw a couple episodes, yeah. so I may have missed that. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, they were looking at social behaviour. And I remember one one kid in particular um, really sort of progressed with their social behaviour with, with that. Yeah, so. and that's the sort of thing, again, kids, they they need that stuff. Where That's what they're measured against if they go to any kind of therapy is those milestones. <laughs> and we can put them in a situation that helps develop them, especially the older ones where they really start focusing on social. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. I'm lost for words now. Forgotten. <laughs> this happens at least once an episode, by the way, where I forget what I'm saying, and then I have a brain fart. I can't remember. What else have we covered? Um, what else? Oh, there's so much to talk about. I guarantee you, I've forgotten. So, what have we covered? Let's go from there. What, What's that? What do you want to talk about? Let's go from there. Um, I. I think I maybe missed something about when we're talking about occupation and moving into residential care. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, an example with one resident is that she was a nurse and she was quite, throughout her life, she was very much a helper and she liked to be seen to teach others and help others and feel like she was contributing. And she could no longer do those nursing things that she used to do for obvious reasons. Mm. But what I found when I did a bit of a, an assessment with her based on the moho, because um, that's deeply embedded in me from my mental health days, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, was that she really valued the role of helping others. And it didn't matter what she was doing. If she was seen to be helping others, then, you know, that, that was good enough for her, mm. you know. And I remember doing a cooking activity with her and being very mindful of how I set up the task. So it was quite a simple, she had dementia, um, and so her ability to sequence tasks and follow instructions was reduced. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew for her that it was really important to be seen to help 
someone. And so I played the passive role and got her to help me make, I can't remember what May, I think it was Jan Drops they were, that's right. My favourite. <laughs> what do you love baking? What's your favourite thing to bake? And she said Jan Drops. So I assume that she, you know, done that in her life before. And, um, you know, the outcome from that well, was very much about the process, but what I got from that was that she felt as though she really helped me. She taught me how to make jam drops. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was really, really um, empowering for her. Um, and so we made a point to staff that whenever that particular resident is at activities, that she be given a role and that role is to help the other residents. yeah. yeah. To do things. Partake in the um, activities, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that was really, really important for her. And then another resident, he would come to the front desk to the admin girls and give them absolute grief every day because <laughs> he was bored. You know, like he he was a worker. He he never had children, he never got married, so a lot of his life involved or was based around his role as a worker. And so Coming into residential aged care, all of a sudden he's not fulfilling any of those roles and that routine is completely gone. And so he'd come up to the front desk and, you know, ask the girls 100 questions and they'd get frustrated and he'd get frustrated and it was sort of that back and forth. And then, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but they worked out that we have a smoke van that comes to the care facility at 11 a.m. every day. Okay. The truck comes, they rock up at the front door and, you know, staff can go out there or residents can go out there and buy food. Very popular. <laughs> and so some of the staff worked out that, hey, if we get this resident to call out over the PA system every day that the smoko van is here, that might give him a sense of purpose. That might give him a sense of, hey, I am doing. And he did it. And every day he's there at 10.30am, he's dressed, he's got his hair, you know, neatly brushed. He doesn't have much hair, but, you know, and it looks very presentable. And he's there for his appointment at 11 a.m., which is to call out over the system that the, the bus is here. And the change in his behaviour has been phenomenal. That's amazing. Just because he has that purpose. Just a little, little bit of structure. Yeah, which has a flow-on effect, doesn't it, because it means you have to be showered by a certain time. Yeah. You have to be dressed, you have to brush your teeth. And that's the kind of thing I, I try and get across to my students with regards to being strength-based. Like you can – or and occupation-based. Like they're like, oh, but we're ignoring these other goals. I'm like, you're not. Like you're using something that has purpose and has meaning and a lot of the other stuff will follow on. Like it, it all – fit. like no one just arrives at work, just poof, they appear. Like there's a whole process that goes into getting them there. And it's the same with anything. You don't go to a doctor's appointment. You don't just rock up. Like there's a whole, starting with getting out of bed, there's a whole process that leads before that. So if you find something that's meaningful for that person, then you can have a look at that process. That you might, they might not have even thought about it or put much conscious thought into it, but you know, because you know, we're taught activity analysis and all that stuff that gets drilled into us for years. You know that there's a process and you can support that person to complete that process in order to engage in, you know, what's actually meaningful. Like, because to me, getting up, having a shower, like, that's a means to an end. That has 
if anything, it annoys me that it takes so long because I, I ha- it has it has no real value to me other than what it allows me to do. And I think that is the, the, the key thing with a lot of sort of probably new therapists and maybe a refresher for some older therapists that that's how we as OTs can stay occupation-based, can stay client-centered and can still, you know, we're not ignoring some of the things that might be seen as important by family, friends, the rest of the profession, who are whoever else, like... You know, it's important for this guy. And I don't know how much direct work went into, you know, getting that guy dressed and ready and all that sort of stuff. Probably, I would suspect, very minimal because you've tapped into his motivation. You've tapped into his volition because you found something that's genuinely meaningful for him. And I, I, meaning and motivation, the link between those two, I think, is very... How do I say it politely? Not very well understood by OTs in general, but I think it needs to be because it's massive, the impact that it can have. And the flow-on effect from all these different models and frameworks and stuff that we're already taught, but being how able to see how they all link together in a real-life situation or a real-world situation, like you can't. You can't simulate that kind of learning. So it's, I think it's stories like that that really highlight, like, this is how we do what we do. Yeah. This is the true value of OT, and I think it's so important to stick to our core values as OTs and stay true, yeah, stay true to it because we have got so much value to add and we need to be confident in what we can provide. And... I think, you know, sometimes we feel maybe, well, we shouldn't have to explain ourselves, you know. We shouldn't have to explain why we're doing what we're doing. But, you know, we, we do. We're still a fairly early profession. We're still yeah. in early days. And people still don't completely understand. Well, they never will completely understand, but they don't fully get what we can offer. And so we do need to explain ourselves. Yeah, definitely. And I think... One thing I have seen is, like, we don't need to, not necessarily take credit, but we don't need to directly treat someone for a specific thing to have an impact on it. Yeah. Like, we can work with, I give the example a lot when I talk about goal setting, usually, of, like, I can work with a guy that says, you know, on the acute mental health ward that says he wants to be an astronaut. Like in the end, the 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 destination itself of that goal isn't super important to the progress yeah. that we can make. But the the little things that we do along the way, working towards that goal, and then eventually, you know, that goal might change, but that doesn't negate the progress that we've made. So, like you said, like it might be, well, if you want to be an astronaut, like you're gonna have to learn how to get out of bed at a reasonable time. Like you're gonna maybe you're gonna have to do some study. Maybe you're gonna have to do this, this, and this. And these are all life skills that most of us may already have in some capacity. Some better than others <laughs> with regards to things like study and whatnot. Uh, but these are this is progress we can help a person with. Working towards a goal that most of us would go, oh, that's so dumb. Like, why would you do that? We can't. Why are you helping this person trying to become an astronaut? You're just feeding his, I've heard all this, you're feeding his delusions, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, 
no, I'm working with something that he's told me is very valuable to him and look at the progress life skills wise that we've made. I'm like, if I straight up went, no, you can't be an astronaut. That's dumb. Boom, done. That's it. I can't work. Like he won't. Why would, why would I work with anyone who's told me that what I value is dumb? Why would I expect, why would I expect him to or her to or whoever it is to? I think you're right in that we do need to stick to our core values. And that's something obviously people who have listened to this podcast a fair bit will be very familiar with me saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is a perfect example of exactly where that can lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's all about the process, not about the outcome. Much of the time, yeah, the value's in the process. A lot, yeah. well, a lot of the value is in the process. Obviously, we all like a, a positive outcome at some point because that's you know, a bit of feather in your cap or an achievement. I don't think anyone would study OT if there wasn't a degree at the end of it. But the 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 value, or even that in itself, like okay, yeah, at the end you get a piece of paper, but the skills that you learn along the way is what actually makes you an OT, not the piece of paper. So hundred percent that is that that like yeah, that's perfect for me. It's <laughs> exactly how I think, just probably slightly more concise and more well said. <laughs> yes. No. It's OT is a um yeah, it's it's awesome. It's a great profession. I'm very glad that I am where I am um, and that I didn't get into medicine or that I didn't do physio. Not that, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with physios or GPs. Well, <laughs> yeah. some of um, them maybe. <laughs> we won't talk about that. I'm joking. <laughs> you can't tell I was rolling my eyes. <laughs> um, but and definitely... I wouldn't, I, yeah, when I look back now at uni, I definitely wouldn't have thought that I'd be where I am today. And I think that it's been a journey. It's mm. been a process of getting here. And that's exciting because in 10 years, you don't know where you're going to be either. Yeah, it's sort of a bit scary actually, but yeah. Existential yeah, crisis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a bit of a, um, I reckon in one of your podcasts you talked about it and it was uh, an occupational crisis. I had one of them. Um, after I had my daughter Frankie, I reckon I was, you know, because after studying OT, working for five or how many years, probably about five years as an OT before I went on training leave, a lot of my identity myself was based around my role as a worker. I mean, I worked full-time as an OT. A lot of my daily life was based around my role as an OT. And then... I got pregnant and I was so keen for maternity leave, as most people are, I think. Um, bit of a break from work, bit of a holiday. I had Frankie, I loved it. And then five months after I had her, I thought, okay, I've got this whole mothering gig, I know what I'm doing. But a part of me was missing and it was that OT in me. And I felt as though, you know, you seem to be a mother and it's like all of a sudden as soon as you have a child, your mother and your identity as a worker is sort of forgotten yeah, because yeah. you're no longer feeling that. Um, and, yeah, I think probably that was a bit of a turning point for me in going, right, that OT is, is awesome and that's that's definitely who I am and what I want to continue to be. Yeah, and I think that's oh, – I was trying to think of what I – it was probably 
well, the I've talked about it a few times, like looking at occupational transitions. Yeah. I've done an episode on it and I've talked about it with a few different people, but I think that occupational identity, so when we're looking at, in most cases, most OTs would look at that on terms of role, uh, like occupational role. Um, and I think we, we often, yeah, little not little changes, but like, I guess, more common changes such as, you know, going from a worker to being a full-time mother often don't get a lot of attention. And if you're not like you, are probably in a, a better space in that you are an OT and you sort of have that background knowledge, but someone who's not just kind of, I, I've seen it with friends of mine who have gone through it where they just kind of hit that stage where they just feel lost. Yeah. And they don't know what to do because they don't. They, they might not have sort of our clinical knowledge around. Well, this might be why this is happening. Mm-hmm. So they're not able to put two and two together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, yeah, they just feel lost, and that's when you know they'll start. You know, they might try and go back to work early, or they'll try and go part time, or whatever. They try and reclaim their identity rather than either themselves or be supported to create a new identity. Which mm-hmm. you know might include both, because mm-hmm. I think even because oh, not that I've been pregnant recently, but yeah, uh, I had had long service when I left our job, uh, and I found the same thing. Like I had six months off, and I think I got about two months in, and I was bored. I was like, I had all these plans. I'm going to do all this stuff. Um, at the time, well, way back when, at the time I was going to start a podcast, that didn't happen, <laughs> but I was, you know, I was going to, I was going to start a private practice and I was going to do all of these things. And I just went, eh. I got two months in, I'm like, I need, I need to go back to work. And <laughs> I'm lucky for me at the time, like it wasn't a financial burden for, for us, but it, I just, I couldn't do it. It just did my head in. And again, luckily I had. I guess my OT training, my OT sort of reference that I could like view the situation through because I I was thinking afterwards, like if someone, because you know, other people do take time off from work and that kind of thing, whether by choice or not, but like if someone who didn't have that sort of lens to view the situation through, like how do they, how do they deal with it? How do they process it? Like what do they, what do they do? Um, and it turns out I ended up going and doing some part-time work and now I'm work there permanently. But, uh, again, I, I think back, like if I had have picked that up earlier, like would I have, rather than trying to immediately, obviously I didn't have a kid then to try and, uh, integrate into my identity. But, uh, I, I think if I had have tried to create a new occupational identity during that time as opposed to what I did which was just do everything I could to reclaim my previous identity uh how would that have turned out like would it have turned out I think a lot of the the stuff that did happen to me at that time was just pure luck in that you know this job came up and I did it part-time and then went full-time blah 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 but like what would happen if it didn't how would I have transitioned through that period differently um, and I think, yeah, I, these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, human beings, we are doing beings, aren't we? We mm. have that desire to do, and when we can't do, 
that's when things go wrong, go haywire. We feel down or, yeah, we feel lost. And I, I just can't even imagine what that would be like for someone with dementia who not only may not have that frame of reference to look at things through, but also for them, like even everyday situations might seem confusing or, uh, you know, not be what they're expecting and be difficult to process as well as so they've got that lost feeling, but mm-hmm. they're not able to work out why at all. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that OTs really need to take into account, mm-hmm. whether they're working in aged care or not. Because like you said, like I mean, my experience with people with dementia has all been through mental health. Yeah. So you know, people with dementia do use other health services. You're not only going to see them in aged care. You, know, you can see them on the hospital wards, you know, in clinics, in mental health. So mm-hmm. I think it's important being able to have an understanding of you know, what might this person be experiencing or how might this person be experiencing things at that point in time because we need to be able to work with people. The number of cases are only rising. I think I looked at the stats the other day and I think currently there's around 450,000 people living with dementia in Australia, but without a medical breakthrough in 30 years, that'll be over 1 million. So... And that's still in my working years. Mm. The, the retirement age isn't getting any lower. So. No, it seems to be getting uh, further and further away from me, <laughs> unfortunately. So we're all, not just OTs, but all health professionals, everyone is going to be affected by dementia in some way, whether it's a relative that has it or they work with someone who has dementia or whether they have it themselves. Mm. So. And so, yes, as much as it's important for us as OTs to be more aware of how we can support someone with dementia, so does the broader community. We all need to become dementia-friendly. Oh, that would be lovely. What a world. (laughs) Are there any tips or hints or advice that you can give to clinicians who be more dementia-friendly? Educate yourself, I think, is the best tip for me, really. Um, I think the more you know, the better care you can provide, particularly with dementia because it's such a specialised area. It's not just caring for an older person with memory problems. It's so much more complex. And like I said, each person with dementia has a unique journey and a unique experience and so we can't put them all in one box and say, hey, this is what people with dementia present like and this is how you work with them. So I think it's about gathering lots of tools in your toolkit, which comes from education, doing mm-hmm. placements, getting experience in the area and then going, right, this is what works for this and this is what might work for that. And, you know, dementia is so variable. You know, one day one thing might work. You know, and I say to parents, it's all about having lots of different tools in your toolkit to use because one day you might have a really good intervention that might work and then 10 minutes later or the next day it is an absolute flop. <laughs> but you've got plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, then you've got more things to pull from and it gives people that empowerment gives them that hope that hey something might work yeah so i think it's important to yeah 
look at a range of different approaches to dementia care, a range of different models and different interventions that might work. Um, yeah. Fantastic advice. There is, yeah, there's a whole lot that we could talk about. But like I said, we could talk to the cows come home. Um, yeah, we could. We probably could do another one. Um, <laughs> I'm probably going to leave this going, oh, my gosh, I should have said this, should have said that. Um, I just mm. really strongly advocate OTs to look at aged care as an option. Um, I think aged care, there's that stigma around aged care that, you know, it's a slow environment, very slow-paced, it's sort of for older people and, yes, the majority of workers in the aged care industry are sort of middle-aged, but I think it is... Mm -hmm. Really, when you jump into that space, it is eye-opening. There's so much potential. And where we're at now in terms of aged care with the Royal Commission into aged care, given what's happened sort of in the past, OTs in particular are in a really good position to promote what the profession does. And you look at the new standards that have come out, and I think it's standard five, but it's yep. around environment. And as OTs, we know environment. You know, we, that's what we do. As well as, you know, apart from many other things, but you know, environment is is very much key in the standards that they've brought out and around promoting an environment that facilitates independence, that facilitates well-being, facilitates quality of life. And I think if we can jump on board that and go, hey, this is what we can do as a profession, this will eliminate your use of having to use antipsychotic medication. It's going to eliminate incident reports that you get, it's going to mean that your staff are wanting to go to work because they're not, you know, having those challenging situations as much. I think we can really make a point that, you know, employ more OTs in aged care. And I think, I, I think traditionally it, it probably was looked at as a place with a limited scope of really sort of core OT things. Because I think a lot of people's impression, basing this purely off my own impression before recently, uh, was, oh, it's just, you know, giving out equipment and putting in rails and that kind of stuff. Whereas uh, hopefully people will hear from what we've talked about today, like this, like the, it's core OT, the mm -hmm. stuff that we should be doing uh, with this population. And that's that's how we're going to make a difference with people. And like you said, it's a growing all over the world. Like the age, the po the population's aging, and you know the jobs are going to be increasing. Like there's all the 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 benefits of you know high employment rates and that kind of stuff that are going to be there if people are looking for work. Mm -hmm. Choosing to put yourself into that that area now, and you know in a few years' time, sort of developing those skills, so you're either advanced practitioner or an expert in some some certain things. It, you this is this is the time to do it like you are opening yourself up for a career of success and easily consistent work because like oh. i said the the uh, the population's aging they're starting to look at new models and i think ot's a lot of the new models like we talked about during this podcast a lot of the new models are core ot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so get on board mm -hmm. um, at least have a look <laughs> yeah. At least to a place. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, with the with the community. I remember I said to when I first went out on my own, started my own business, I said to one of the, the workers that refers to me, I said, So what sort of referrals do you send to your OGs typically? And she said, Oh, usually if our clients need a ramp or a rail, I'll send a referral out. And I've gone, oh no. You know, that's what they well, that's what she thinks OTs do. How can I change that? How can I, you know, get her to see that we can do so much more than that? And I think for me it's been demonstrating and actually doing myself. So showing yeah. that, hey, when I write my reports, I don't just put in recommendations for our ramps and rails, but I talk about social integration, community groups, activities that they can do at home to promote that. Um, sense of purpose and identity and I think as OTs if we are doing and demonstrating people are going to start to jump on board and see the true value of what we can provide outside of criminals. Awesome, awesome. So thank you so much for having a chat. I've I've, I've learnt more than I probably ever did at uni with regards to aged care just today because like I said my experience with uh, age care is extremely limited. I could probably count the number of clients that I saw in that field during placement on like my hands. So uh, it's it, you've definitely enlightened me, and uh, I've really enjoyed actually seeing the uh, like I just said just before. Like my previous perspective on age care was that it was very limited to equipment and rails and a lot around safety. Whereas you've really en- uh, enlightened me to the genuine occupation based practice side of it which is which is amazing because that's that's my jam that's my wheelhouse so yeah thank you so much for for coming along and having a chat that's all right it's been a pleasure i was very flattered when he asked me to jump on board to do a podcast so and where well where can people find you online by the way if they're looking for you or your business, or dementia, or anything like that? <laughs> so on Instagram, I have a page teaming with dementia, and that's where I post a lot of sort of tips and tools and, you know, information about dementia, particularly um, for caregivers and, you know, other OTs, other clinicians in the area. So, yeah, that's basically where my online presence is at the moment and I've got a website, holisticoccupationaltherapy.com.au and that's sort of um, my business page, um, which I don't sort of, or my business website, I should say, which I don't really tend to update too much. I've got a blog on there, but I'm a bit slack with that. So if you want to find me, go to Instagram. And you can click me an email. It's got my email link on there as well. It does. Got your website and everything. I'll throw all those links in the show notes for this episode so they're nice and easy to find. But definitely go and follow on Timmy with Dementia. Like I said, I, I've got a lot out of it. That's you know how I found you and how I connected with you. And yeah, a lot of your stuff is a lot of the stuff you post I find really simple and practical and easy to digest. And that's because I'm a simple person. That's how I like to get my information. That's good. <laughs> in <the smaller> box. <laughs> And your and your photos are often quite artistic, which I like too. I don't know why I have a thing for. I'm not very good at photography, but I have a thing for photography, so I like that as well. Yeah, Instagram's good for that. You can get your photography sort of um, skills out. 
Yeah. That's <laughs> get the filters. Yeah. Get the filters going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much. It's it's been an absolute pleasure. No worries. Thank you.